So there is a leap of faith mindset that I think the leaders that you're working with and I'm working with have to basically embody, recognizing that they can't be foolproof, that there aren't three ring binders of you do it this way, then you stop, then you go here, then you go there. I know they would love to see that, but I think you have to give them the appreciation that they're part of a laboratory of change. They're part of experimentation. Welcome to episode 41 of The Future of Work, the podcast that looks at every aspect of work in the future, and it's brought to you by Wanda and Pattern. We release two podcasts a month featuring industry experts and thought leaders discussing how work is changing and evolving. You could say the future of work is now. I'm Doug Folks, and this week with Wanda CEO Claire Haydar, we meet Todd Jick, a professor at Columbia Business School and a leading expert in leadership and organizational change. Todd has twice received the Singh V Prize for teaching excellence with popular MBA courses on change management. He has co-authored Managing Change and the Boundaryless Organization and actively consults with companies on leadership and transformation. In a packed show today, we look at what has actually changed in the past four decades. Practically, what is the starting point when an organization wants to change? And the positive and negative reactions leaders have taken post-pandemic. But first, Claire asked Todd why he chose organizational change. Just before we join the conversation, a word about Pattern and Wanda. Wanda teaches you how to work smarter using tools that enhance collaboration and identify unnecessary barriers breaking legacy behaviours before they destroy your team's professional, productivity and personal health. Pattern is a new product that identifies trends across multiple platforms – email, calendars, tasks, video conferencing and workflow management – and then combines them to help each team member learn and grow as individuals, as leaders and in comparison to their peers in the marketplace. We can do better together. Check them out at wonder.com. That's W-N-D-Y-R.com. Professor Todd, welcome. It's so good to have you on the podcast with us today. And we're honestly just so privileged to have you as one of the world's leaders in the field of organizational change with us here today. I'm going to dive right in and I'm going to ask you to share with us why organizational change. Well, I could I could be smart and, and answer why you know why, why not, but the the, the 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 real answer is Claire that uh, years ago when I was doing my PhD and thinking about what field I wanted to look at, I examined a merger of two hospitals and discovered that this very change caused friction and havoc in a way that that bothered me tremendously. That uh, the goal of making one plus one to three. Was, was so far was so far afield. We weren't even at one plus one equaling two. And the reason was that they didn't handle change well. And everything about that said to me, there's something wrong, something misguided about the way organizations are managed that they can't handle changes. And I wanted them to be places that people would be proud to be at and that would be well-performing. So everything about my interest was I thought organizations could be better than they were. And I was going to work, as it turns out, my entire now 40-year career trying to figure out how to get them to that better place. 
from my side, uh, nice to meet you and um, yeah, good morning to you. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here with you, with you as well, Doug. Thank you. Professor Todd, in your co-authored book, The Boundaryless Organization, you look at a, a bunch of things, but amongst them, the breaking the chains of organizational structure, improving efficiency, cultural change, competitive success, and leveraging resources. Now, this book was first published back in the mid-1990s, and these are points that we're still grappling with today. So my question really is, what, what has changed? What main trends have you seen or noticed emerged over the past few decades? The boundaryless organization was something that we wrote in the mid 90s out of a lot of work we did in a very, very impressive organization at the time, General Electric. And it was sort of the gold standard of management approaches. And we were trying at the time to figure out whether what they had done at General Electric was something that was transferable to other organizations. So we identified a variety of syndromes and challenges and diagnoses about organizations and some of the potential remedies at that time. And you just listed many factors that seem very timely. Had you said to me, Doug, uh, you just wrote a book last month and you published it and you dealt with issues of cultural change and uh, organization structure and the like, it would seem like we're talking about today's issues. So in many respects, I think we were, we were quite clairvoyant at the time in identifying deeply difficult and challenging issues for organizations and in some ways are timeless. And we also proposed some remedies. And in some, in some respects, those remedies are just as timely today. But of course, things, things have changed. At the time when we were concerned that large, large organizations had become too slow and too bureaucratic, uh, non-responsive to customers, too parochial, too domestic, et cetera. And they were not led by leaders who could actually, in our terms, break down the boundaries, the barriers. What were those boundaries? They were hierarchical boundaries. They were silo boundaries. They were things, again, that people still talk about today. And we wanted to propose ways in which companies, organizations could become not boundary-free, not freewheeling and chaotic, but boundary less was sort of the, the construct. And in essence, we were saying, you know, how can organizations get out of their own way and enable their own goals and performance and, and I would say, align with sort of human and social needs? Well, those questions and that big question remains just as relevant today, but in some ways has increased, I think, in its complexity. So I stand by what we did at that time, but I would say we have seen things change uh, in many, many respects. I'll give you a few examples. I'm sure we'll talk about this during the podcast. We never asked these questions in, the, in that period in the, in, in the 90s. Uh, are our workplaces compatible with the values of a new generation of millennials and Gen Zers? Uh, are our workplaces inclusive, not just participative and collaborative, which is the words we used to use, but inclusive? Uh, are we able to function effectively in a truly global world of doing business, respecting different cultures and practices? Those are questions we didn't ask then. And those are questions which are highly relevant today. So I'm very keen to, to answer these questions. And I'm really asking, can we really make the experiments in new work practices and new cultures and structures work? I think we must, but how is what I think uh, you know, we'll talk some more about. I love 
those three questions that you've just pinned down there. And I think that flows perfectly to where we're wanting the conversation to go. So if you were not asking those three questions back in the early 90s, if we were to ask ourselves those questions now, can you go down into the details around that? Like, what does a compatible workplace look like for these new generations? What does an inclusive workplace look like? And what does a globally effective functional organization look like? Now, you know, Claire, you just violated a key premise of my, my professional life, which is that I ask, the, I ask the questions, I try and get other people to answer them. I felt no, no, Professor Todd, you're on the podcast today. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> all right. Well, so so much, so much for being agreeable to this idea. So I have to be able to answer those questions, or at least think about the answers to those questions, because they are critical to our to our future our future workplace. I'm going to maybe give you some broad answers. If we want to go into any one of them more deeply, we can do that. But you know, in in, in the the issues about millennials, about inclusion, about cross cultural. Are all are all critical. So let's let's look at what would it take to 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 work or help to remedy those issues. Let's start with leadership. The old leadership model is clearly not going to work with either that demographic or that sort of value system or that sort of geographic reality, because what was more autocratic or directive or domestic oriented and often quite culturally uh, insensitive is not going to work. And I want to maybe just focus on the fact that the model of the old leader, of a more central, all-knowing leader, which we have, I think, rejected now for, for, for a long time, uh, is clearly not going to work when you have a millennial generation that is uh, knowledgeable in their own right, uh, conversant with the technology in a way that their bosses may not be, uh, committed to the values of inclusion in a way that the organization probably has not demonstrated. And so the, ne- the necessity of working with that generation, working with those values is right in front of us. So the leader has to be oriented very differently and accept the fact that their own authority is much more diffused and they rely on and can in fact entrust to that, to, to that generation much more than they would in a typical boss employee situation. Also, that workforce wants to do its work differently. It doesn't want to work in the same way. So not only does it not want to take autocratic authority, it also wants to work uh, where it wants, uh, when it wants, and with a lot of feedback. And those are, again, not typical structures in organizations uh, of the sort of traditional model. And so the, 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 the millennials and Gen Zers are pushing for much more flexibility of work hours there we go into the pandemic conversation I'm sure we're going to have, uh, much more uh, flexibility in terms of the use of their technology wh- when they want, where they want, as opposed to sitting sitting at a desk. And uh, the, the organization m- must be sort of uh, flexible to, to respond to that. I'll just make one last comment, which is about technology, because obviously I'm alluding to the fact that technology has made us all more connected, allowed us to be able to work cross-culturally much more readily and the like. So it has many positive uh, features to it, but I don't know that we have fully exploited it in terms of understanding its enabling of the kind of collaboration and creativity and knowledge sharing, knowledge sourcing that it affords us. My own children who are millennials themselves 
you know, are right there with, you know, kind of a walking search engine in their hand. And mm. uh, in a way that, you know, we wouldn't have thought before when we had to kind of work down a, a hierarchy or work across a silo and say, we need to speak to somebody who's expert in it. Well, you can gain that expertise so much more readily. So I've given you many different aspects to it. Each one of them, again, deserves its own answer. But there are many ways in which I think leadership and the workforce values and technology all are going to need to be upgraded and and updated to respond to those challenges. It's so interesting, uh, Professor Todd, listening to you because us as an organization practice organizational change and change management in every aspect of the work that we do with our clients. And this is an area that I've also researched deeply and it's a research that, you know, I did my master's thesis in as well, hence the passion for it and hence Althea's introduction to you. And one of the things that we always um, work through with our clients is we basically teach them the basic principle, which you would be very familiar with, is that in order to make change successful inside an organization, you have to be working at that leadership and the system and process and the individual level. You can't ever just be working across one of those. And it's so beautiful for me to hear you actually say that, you know what I mean? Because it's for me, it's like, yes, he's living his truth. He He lives and breathes this work every single day. So just great to hear that coming through. You know, for you, Claire, it's obviously serving your clients well. And so giving them good advice is is critical. And I'm glad we are aligned on that advice. I feel a similar responsibility, although I also have clients, I would say in terms of the student generation that I'm schooling Mm. and that are going to be going to those very workplaces that you're, you're working in. And I want to give them a realistic picture of the challenges of change, the difficulty of organizations, some of the frustrations they likely will encounter, but also give them the tools to hopefully motivate and equip them to be able to play their role in those very uh, changes uh, that you were uh, advocating so that they are partners in that journey and can, in fact, you know, work with the current leadership as well as themselves at one point becoming leaders. And be you know progressive leaders and be able to do these very things. So we're synced up because we're each trying to contribute to this challenge uh, in different ways, and hopefully it aligns well with each other. I'm just going to take a 10 second break to ask you if you're finding this podcast of value. If you are, please follow us on your platform of choice. Remember, we have new content published twice a month. Let's get really practical at this point in time. What is the starting point? Because you yourself said it earlier in the organization, the hierarchy still exists, the silos still exist, the autocratic leadership still exists, the bureaucratic system still exists. What is the most impactful starting point? When you say modernizing organizations, and I would agree with that that verb or transforming them, that is a big gulp to ask. I mean, there's a lot of momentum in the inertia and stasis category. And yes, there are many forces for change and many reasons to change. But when you put those two forces against each other, inertia often wins out. So how do you start? It seems to me has two bases. One is, have you uh, the confidence from seeing others that have done this themselves that you can learn from? Are there demonstrations with specific answers to your question? Because obviously, the starting point for any organization is going to vary by circumstance. But what are the techniques and what are the specific ways 
in which companies can, in fact, transform themselves. So I'll use the fact that I teach a course at Columbia Business School called Advanced Organizational Change. You, you referred only to the organizational change in your first question. But the reality is those students are taught the basics of understanding resistance and forces for change, et cetera. In the Advanced Organization Change course, I, in some ways, I have kind of your client profile. That is, I have students that are more likely either to go to the consulting firms and work with companies on this, or we'll go to the companies directly, or we'll start a company and want to build one of this kind. And so I need to be able to show them that this can work. You can, in fact, make these changes. So I provide, as a number one starting point, examples, specific illustrations of companies that are changing the way they work. And I mean big time changes with radical transparency, with radical restructuring of the hierarchy to a more team-based or decentralized structure, and uh, with perhaps constant feedback, some combination or perhaps even all of those to show them that this exists. Well, five years ago, those company examples were few and fewer and far between, which meant that I was subject to, well, that's an interesting example, Zappos of working away from a hierarchy, but it's kind of a crazy company. And God bless Tony Shea, but you know it didn't work out mm. so well for him. And it's just sort of quirky. Uh, God bless Bridgewater, really interesting on its radical transparency, but a very charismatic CEO, kind of a mm -hmm. one of a kind type, not transferable. And the one, two, three, four examples could be some way written off, not today. Today, there are examples from many, many, many industries, many spheres, startups who build it from scratch. I mean, the sort of Spotify or the, 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 or the Netflixes, large traditional organizations and how they transform, like, you know, sort of the, the, the ING Bank or Accenture itself that's doing all sorts of interesting things in performance management. There are many examples. So it's hard to then say, Oh, it's just sort of a quirky shoe company in, in Las Vegas. That is, mm. we don't have that today. And that encourages people to see that there are ways to do it, whether you build it from start or whether you use it transformatively, which is probably more of what your, what your clients are facing. So helping them see actual techniques, actual examples of how it's done. And again, Spotify has been an example for many other companies. Those companies don't imitate exactly everything that Spotify did, whatever their first steps were, because they're not Spotify. But they do similar things, and that's helpful. I want to mention oh. the second factor quickly, which is about mindset. So techniques, specifics about you know, how you set up a performance management system or how you start with a pilot or whatever, those are the techniques. The mindset says no matter how you cut it, you can't prove that the future is going to be better than the current state. You can prove that, <laughs> that the past hasn't gone well or that you know, the past versus the present, you have data. You don't have data on the future. So there is a leap of faith mindset that I think the leaders that you're working with and that I'm working with have to basically embody a willingness wow. to take a, a leap of faith into new models, recognizing that they can't be foolproof, that there aren't three ring binders of you do it this way, then you stop, then you go here, then you go there. I know they would love to see that, but I think you have to give them the appreciation that they're part of a laboratory of change. They're part of experimentation. And that is exciting, but it's also a little foreboding at times because you don't have the manual that goes with it. But what you do have is a certain confidence and mindset, which says that the status quo 
is not sustainable, that continuing the way they've been is not going to be workable. And so there must be the search for new ideas, new workforce practices, a new future. And although it's not proven, and although it will come with bumps and bruises, it will still be likely better than the current state. So it is worth the journey. It is worth the leap of faith. And as I say, what other choices do we have than to seek out new models and new ways of working? So I answer your question with techniques and a mindset and the combination, I think, gives people the confidence to move forward. With such an established and experienced career, I mean, as you say, you've, cre- you've created the courses and taught many of today's current thought leaders. It obviously could be just so easy to rest on your laurels. How do you as a person keep yourself on the cutting edge of organizational change? So first of all, Doug, I have a very, very unexplainable experience, which is that my students each year remain 28 years old. They seem to never age. Each September they return, they're still, they're still 28. And for some also unknown reason, in the same September, I have aged a year. So there is is a certain uh, revitalization that occurs by the fact that the gap between my students and myself continues to enlarge year by year. But what it gives me is tremendous youthful enthusiasm that each year they bring. And not just enthusiasm, but knowledge. So the first part of, I think, what you're asking me is, you know, how do I stay refreshed? How do I stay sort of on the, on the cutting edge of this? I practice what I preach. And what I have preached is no leader can know all the answers. You can't have sort of centralized leadership. So I say to the students on the first day, I have 40 plus years of experience in this field. Yes, I could sit here and lecture you for the entire course, but I, that would neither be appealing to me nor in the end appealing to you, nor does it speak to the fact that you have knowledge, even from your five years of work experience, because your five years of work experience has been times, you know, let's say I have a class of 70 students times 70 across many different industries, across many different places in the world, and they have a tremendous wealth of knowledge that I want them to bring. And guess what? That extends my knowledge because it gives me a lot more uh, information, data about different challenges, different experiences, different things that are, that are going on. So for example, I ask myself the question as they tell their stories about their experiences, is it easier to make change in a larger organization or a small organization? You know, and the, 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 the simple answer is it must be easier in the small than the large. And then you start looking at small organizations, they tell you stories and you say, it's the same. It's the same. It's just a smaller microcosm of the same phenomenon. Then somebody says to me, well, this is all interesting, but how do you make change in a family business when uh, your father is the boss or your mother is the owner or whatever it might be? And, uh, you know, that says, okay, we talk about resistance to change. How about having that conversation with your parents? Then what do you do? And so I get charged up by the challenging questions they're asking and the fact that I have to search for those answers. I hear a story about 360 feedback being used globally and discover that one of my Chinese students says that in China, there's only one answer to 360 feedback when rating your boss. That's a five. Give them a five, a perfect score. That's the answer. And so everybody's preaching, you know, 360 feedback will open up transparency, open up dialogue. Is every boss in China a five? No, but culturally there are five because bosses are only bosses because they are deserving of a five. That's a cultural framework that is not in the West, but it is in China. And it's important for me then to think about 
what parts of organizational change management extend uh, universally or cross-culturally and which don't. So the more these students bring the richness of their questions and their experiences, the more I'm stimulated to grow and deepen my own thought leadership. I'm challenging organizations to re-examine their basic management models, thinking about the hierarchy, thinking about feedback, thinking about silos, et cetera. I wonder whether I should challenge my own field of change management as to whether it is perhaps locked into some old assumptions, whether it is built on some premises that are no longer as relevant. Some of the questions I was raising before about millennials, about inclusion, about cross-cultural. And so I have written an interesting piece about how change management, the field of thinking and change management itself might consider and should be changing. One of the key models that everybody I would think on your podcast is familiar with is the old Kurt Lewin model of unfreezing, freezing, and refreezing. You got to get people to get out of the current state. You got to give them some place to go. And then you lock that in. Well, who's locking things in anymore? Why well, want a refreezing, the very basic construct of then we we'll go to a stasis? What, where is the stasis in our world today? Show, show me an industry that's in stasis. Show me a company that's in stasis. So I've also refreshed myself by challenging my own, my own career and the own kind of thinking that I've done over my career. So practicing what I've been preaching through the way in which I teach and through the way in which I write about my field, that's how I keep myself young, not quite 28, but certainly young and active. It's incredible. Just before I hand back to Claire, actually, it's quite interesting what you're saying towards the end of your, your answer there. I just wanted to ask you about another one of your books, one you've co-authored with, and I hope I pronounced her name correctly. Is it Maury Piperl? Piperl, yes, indeed. Piperl. Yes. It's called Managing Change, and it's widely considered as the go-to resource in many business schools around the world, I'm sure. What, in your opinion, then makes it stand out from the rest? Looking at the end of your last answer, is there going to be a new... Um, a new chapter in the in the revised version. Yeah. Well, then now now this fun conversation has become a lot a lot a lot of a lot, lot less fun. If you're saying to me, "Yeah, where's your next where's your next edition? Where's the new chapter? Let's go. Let's get get right to it." So, thank you, Doug, for bringing a dose of reality into this conversation. First of all, thank you for your kind words about the book. We're we're both very proud of that book. It is in its third edition. It is widely sold, and we're we're very happy with it. I think what we did with that book, certainly what we intended to do, was make it practical as well as conceptual. So although it's used as a textbook and therefore to sort of educate students and practitioners about it, I think they, they, they need both, meaning they need, as the book has, specific case studies of specific kind of change, challenge situations, and think about how they would handle them. So real world examples of, of what you would do if you were in this situation type type dilemmas. And that speaks to people who want to be on the ground, who want to say, yes, if I face that situation, or actually I did face that situation, and I would have turned right, but I see a, the logic of why you might turn left and do it, do it differently. So part of the value of the book that we at least uh, hope we had uh, achieved was to be practical. But then there's also conceptual work that, that sits with it. So it's one thing to just say, well, I had this experience and therefore it must be universal, or, or that's kind of the end of the story. But in reality, the benefit of being an academic as well as a consultant over many years is you see the broader picture. And uh, part of what I think the book attempts to do is give people some challenging conceptual advice, such as, I'll give you a few examples. 
One of them is around the term that's often used in change management in the world of change, which is resistance. And the word resistance refers to people who are going against the change and therefore in the way, they're an obstacle. And it has many sort of negative or pejorative associations. So one of the pieces in the book happens to be about redefining resistance, not as the resistors of change, but as the recipients of change. And if you look at people as recipients rather than resistors, it changes your understanding of their reactions. If you were in that situation, you received this news, this communication, you were the recipient of this impact, how would you have reacted? That's different than, well, you must be sort of a less, lesser person, and you're, therefore we call you a resistor. You're a bad person. So we tried to reconceive the notion of the uh, impact of change around how people, in fact, experience it without putting a sort of a judgment on it, but more a description of what that's like. And the more you understand people's reactions and, re and, and response to change, the more likely you are able to manage through the change because you're more respectful of that. And in fact, even their reaction, which we used to call resistance, might be some useful insights into change, that into some of the obstacles or issues associated with the change that you would benefit from hearing. That it need not be, you know, well, if you're not agreeing with what I'm trying to change here, you must be, you know, kind of a lesser person, get with the program. Instead, it is, let me tune into what you're saying, and maybe we can make it better together. So that's one example. And the second one, just quickly, is that the um, question about vision. Everybody always talks about, we well, have to have a vision for change. Okay, that's terrific to have that vision. Now, my question that we asked in the book was, when do you need to refresh the vision? How long does that last? And in a fast-changing world, is there such a thing as you know, sort of a steadfast, steadfast vision, just as there is a steadfast strategy? And of course, the answer is no. You need to be thinking about some aspects of the vision that are steady and that retain and remain, but others that need to be rather continually refreshed. So the whole notion of you must start with an anchor or a vision is certainly still important, but when you refresh it is a more interesting conceptual question, which then has a practical component. That's what we tried to do in the book. Give people a sense of if you were there, how would you handle it? And maybe you might handle it differently if you think about it in different ways. Professor Todd, where I want to go now is the, our current reality within the pandemic that we've just been living through. And what I'd like to ask you is what have you seen have been the top three reactions that leaders have taken? And I'd love for you to talk through both the positives and the negatives. You know, I did a whole series of talks that you can probably find about leadership and the pandemic. And mm -hmm. I, they were subtitled, you know, rising to the occasion, because I was hoping that we'd see more rising than falling. Your question is about where did leaders rise and where did they disappoint us? I think on the rising part, finally, leaders became human. They actually saw people as human beings with lives, families, issues, in-laws, parents, dogs, you name it, but they actually saw them as human beings. And I think in the workplaces, as we had pre-pandemic, you know, you just see them as, you know, the, 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 the VP of this, the director of that, and just what, what have you done recently to deliver the results? It was inescapable during the pandemic through Zoom and the like not to see the human side. And I think that softened the leaders to the good and I think it created relationships that I hope will be long lasting. So certainly one positive is that it opened up the humanity 
that I think makes for a better kind of workplace uh, condition and better working conditions with the way in which people will, in fact, learn to, to respect and validate each other. I think we also learn to the positive something about trust. And I say this now, and I'll give you the negative at the same time. So on the one hand, there was a lot of skepticism about how people would be managed, entrusted, slash controlled, old model, when they are not visible, you know, when they are remote. And of course, a lot of skepticism, it's kind of the old, the old negative theories of people, that people would in fact be trustworthy. And guess what? Many, many leaders discovered they were trustworthy. Not only were they trustworthy, they probably worked more hours than they had previously because they worked at all hours of the day and night. They probably had less supervision and yet were able to accomplish more tasks. And so in some ways, it built not just an understanding of people and their humanity, but also an ability to trust them that had not been there previously. And I guess the third positive, and then there's the underside of each of these, is that uh, I think we have, through this, uh, as leaders, created the opportunity to create a new kind of workplace, this sort of hybrid workplace that's being talked about, 87 different versions of hybrid. But I think some notion of it's not just going to be five days, nine to five, nine to seven, whatever it is, but it's going to be some kind of a work life relationship, an integration of personal and professional lives, which is going to allow for a more more flexibility. So we've sort of penetrated that boundary between the personal life and the work life in a way that I think will be productive for us going forward. Now, the underside of each of these are the bottom three. So we did establish that humanity, but now as we start back into the workplace, will we start to relapse and treat people much more back to the sort of VP and director rather than understanding them as human beings? And I think there's a chance that that's going to occur. The trusting of people that I'm describing in the affirmative had a unfortunate mirror image of software companies that were surveillance tools for managers that boomed during this period. That, of course, is built on a lack of trust. That's built on a sense of, you know, we can't really uh, know what they're doing and we better find out. And so whether we have cameras on their computers that tells us are they sitting at their computer or not, are they looking at this site or are they looking at that site or whatever else is going into that surveillance, those software companies boomed. Those leaders, in my mind, uh, relapsed in what they were doing. And finally, if the hybrid workplace is the more positive kind of outcome for leaders, you also, again, have a number of CEOs now that are saying, okay, everybody, you enjoyed enjoyed your pandemic? Back to work. I'm here. I'm in the office. I'll see you Monday at 9 a.m. And I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear about, you know, the in-laws that I have to take care of, the the aging parent, the this, the that. Uh, You're back to work. And I think, again, there's a possibility that we, again, find ourselves getting back to the old normal rather than creating a, creating a new normal. So I have you know, days in which I'm optimistic based upon what I saw. And of course, I would like to believe, and I'm sure you do too, that your clients are in the more positive examples and can sustain it. But there are still examples otherwise. And one of the key premises of the, the talk that I gave is you know, when it came to laying off people, a few companies handled things with great humanity and great care and all too many companies, you know, did Zoom layoffs in which, you know, in three minutes, they basically said, you're out of here, you know, and, that, and, and that's it through some sort of robotic voice. So, you know, we have a legacy now this past year that is going to be remembered by employees to the good in the positive examples. But for others where the trust, I think, was perhaps broken, 
uh, there's going to have to be a lot of a lot of rebuilding going forward. So my last question, Professor Todd, is again more of a personal one. We've been speaking about working remotely and the impact of the pandemic. How has it affected your personal day-to-day -day life? Is it a change that you would ever have predicted? Well, Doug, I'm sure you know the expression about old dogs and new tricks. And of course, the phrase <laughs> is that old dogs don't learn new tricks. To the extent that I'm in the old dog category, which is only by you know, my formal passport age, but not by my mental age, I have to say, I was a resistor, now I'm going to use the term resistor, of MOOCs and online courses, any kind of, you know, kind of experimentation away from my mainstream strength, which was high touch, not high tech. So when the pandemic came, and I was forced, as everyone else, and in my case, in 10 days time to shift from a course that was going to be sort of my 40th year of teaching new material, but always in sort of similar ways to having to convert to Zoom teaching. That really forced me to consider, do old dogs learn new tricks or not? And I'll be damned, I was not going to let that happen to me. And so this old dog did learn new tricks. I worked very hard in the way in which I've been talking about, you know, kind of companies trying to work hard to crowdsource information about best practices about Zoom teaching, to ask as many questions as I could of people that I thought would be helpful, to accept the fact that there'll be some bumps and bruises, but that I would work in sort of a new way, but that it was going to be not only a necessary way, but potentially even a better way in many respects to do my core business, which was to do teaching. So I ended up feeling like the remote experience had that very strong positive for me, that at my stage of career, having established myself well and everything I've done, I felt like I proved to myself I could learn a new skill in a significant way. And it was very fulfilling to me to be able to do that. I would also say it's not actually a bad experience to spend more time at home and less time commuting and finding myself observing and enjoying things that I haven't done before. I, I moved out of New York City uh, during the pandemic time and experienced the seasons in a more rural setting, which meant that I got to see birds and nature and all sorts of things that were of a passing interest in the old days and became a primary interest in the new days. And again, it sort of taught me open your eyes. There's so much more to be taken in if you allow yourself to do it. And so both building up a skill set, opening myself to, to, to learn, I feel a very proud survivor of all this and even a proud thriver from this whole 100, once in a hundred year experience that may, who knows, come back in some other form. But I feel like I'm ready now for even more changes. And as somebody who's been preaching change for many, many decades, I think now I've actually even practiced it. <laughs> Professor Todd, I just, I love that, that piece that you've just shared right now. And that's actually the question that I wanted to um, end this conversation on was I wanted to ask you, like, what is your toolkit that you yourself use to navigate change through? So whether that's personal change or career change or, you know, change in class structure. And I think in many ways you actually just have answered it for us. But is there anything else you want to add to that? You know, as I say, it's easier to ask the questions and answer them. It's easier, it's easier to preach about change than practice it. 
but it's a very it's it's a very short-lived kind of paradigm if you live that way. I think part of it is what I have described as a career in which I build on what I had done as an undergraduate, which was I was an anthropology major. An anthropology major was a cop-out because I didn't just I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. So I said, how about the study of humankind? That seemed like a good thing. <laughs> well, what was not under that topic? And it was a way of saying I have been a, a product of curiosity all my life. And curiosity in the end does entail change because it opens yourself up to new possibilities. And so a uh, part of what I did, even living in New York City, is uh, we would pick an area of New York City and we would say, let's just go. We haven't been there before with my wife and my son. Let's just go there on a Saturday and explore. I love going to places and just asking people questions. I love my students crowdsourcing their, their life experiences and their change experiences. So as long as I remain open to a world of, uh, I think, tremendous variety and variability, I'm going to be able to allow myself to be personally changing. I don't know that I'm the perfect model of it. I'm not peripatetic. I'm not every you know one or two years you know rebuilding my whole skill set and dropping out of one profession and doing another profession. I've been pretty integrated in what I've done, but the integration has been flexibility and opportunity. And those opportunities mm -hmm. have always come before me. And now I feel myself opened up even more to those possibilities. And I enjoy it. It's a it's a blessing and a privilege to have a kind of life that I've been able to lead with, with the tremendous universities I've taught in, with the tremendous clients I've had, with people like yourself spending time with me like, like today. And so I, I feel like uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't have done anything differently. And I look forward to the next decades when they'll still be 28. And I may just to put another year or two on my odometer in the meantime. Professor Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Doug and I both share a favorite podcast with one of our previous guests. And I want to tell you that you have just moved up into my number one position. That is far <laughs> too kind and far too hungry. But I will take it as a great compliment. Thank you very much, Claire. You and Doug have asked wonderful questions. You prepared well. It was a delight to talk with you today. And we are out of time. Professor Todjik has left the building. If you found this content of value, please follow us on your preferred platform and share it with friends and colleagues. Just a reminder, for more information about Wanda and Pattern, you can visit their website, wndyr.com. And so, from me, Doug Folks and Chaos and Rocket Fuel, stay safe and we'll see you soon.